The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Gospel of Luke, if you will turn with me to Luke chapter 9, we are going to look in this uh, passage today at an event in the, in the life of Jesus Christ, which really informs us a lot about our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Look, look at Luke chapter 9, and I want to read from verse 37 down to verse 50 just to give you this story. This is narrative. This is what's happening in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration is where Jesus was glorified before the eyes of his apostles. And Elijah and Moses appeared there with him. They saw him supernaturally transformed before their eyes to display his glory and his deity right there before them, so close they could touch him. And so he comes down off the mountain after they've experienced this. And now in Luke chapter 9, in verse 37, on that day, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, that is the mountain of transfiguration, where he, where he was transformed right before their eyes, a large crowd met them. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. There's a note that the, the word, he's my only boy, is translated in the New American Standard, is the word monogonase. That word is a word that's used to describe Jesus Christ and his relationship to the Father. He's the only begotten of the Father. And this man says, this is my only son. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, to cast out this demon. But they could not. And the implication is they didn't have the confidence to do it. They didn't believe they could cast this demon out. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here, he says to the father, this father. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument, now get the timing of this. An argument started among them, among the apostles, as to which of them might be the greatest. (laughs) But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one is the one who is least among all of you. That is the one who is great. They're arguing over who's the greatest, and Jesus says, the great one is the least among you. John answered and said, Master, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. He's not a part of our party. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. What we're going to see in this, uh, in this passage is the fact that the apostles at this time, this is right in the middle of the ministry of Jesus. You think of his ministry publicly, his public ministry lasts about three and a half years, and this is about halfway through. And what we're going to see is these apostles are not prepared to fulfill their calling with Jesus leaving. There still needs to be more work in their life. I don't know about you, but I feel the same way. I've been a a, a disciple a long time, but I feel like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in my heart. And in fact, this has been a very convicting passage. Um, Now, in this passage, it says that many of these people marveled at what Jesus did, but they didn't receive him. They didn't acknowledge him. They did not come to him and believe upon him. They, ex- they basically exercised willful ignorance about who he really was. Because John had come and announced that the Messiah, God's Messiah, was coming and that they should prepare, repent, be baptized, and prepare for the coming of Messiah. And yet when he came, they did not recognize him. They saw him. They were amazed and marveled at what he did. They were in awe of these, these marvelous things that he did, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. But they're not ready. What remains to be done? And why does at least a year need to be devoted to doing it? Why is this this extended? He could have gone right back to Jerusalem, been arrested, crucified, raised from the dead. But instead, there's going to be 10 months in the middle in which Jesus is with his disciples. Now, what we have seen already in this book, that they have been with him and they've seen all these miraculous things. And in fact, he has just been transfigured before them on the mountain. And yet, they still have these big unfinished areas in their life. Why does does the gospel narrative take such a lengthy detour before Jesus actually gets to his work that he's come to the world for, which is to be crucified and raised from the dead? It's because they need to be with him longer. How in the world are disciples changed? You know, the Bible says, in fact, I wrote this down. In Luke 640, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained, fully discipled, will be like his teacher. Now, thank goodness that doesn't mean if I participate in discipling you, when you're fully trained, you'll be like me. It means you'll be like Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is doing the discipling through us so that we would become like him. Then in Matthew 10, verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he, that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, that is Jesus, they called him Beelzebul. They said he did what he did in the power of the devil. How much more will they malign the members of his household? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be maligned. They maligned him, and they will malign you. And so what's happening here is that we, what is revealed to us in this passage is these four areas of weakness, of unfinished character in their life. And the cure for it, we're going to find out as we go through the next few chapters, is they need more time with Jesus. What do you need? 
You think that's what you need? I know that's what I need. I absolutely know that that's true. That we need to be with Jesus. In fact, the reason we come here and meet together like this, this is a, this is a gathering of Christians. We meet on a regular basis. Some of us three or four times a week. And the reason we meet together is because we want to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. We want to be with his people as they praise him, as they worship him, as they hear his word being proclaimed to them. Because we know it is nothing short of time with Jesus Christ that is going to change us and make us fulfilled disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe I'm assuming a lot. Let me just say something real simple, and that is that the, the mission of the church, the reason the church exists is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. Everything else that we do is a part of that process of making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the great commission, of course, that Jesus gave to the apostles, and we take it that that's for all believers, that we are to be going in our daily life and making disciples of Jesus Christ, seeing them come to have a commitment to Christ, be baptized in his name, and learning to obey all that he has commanded us. But without the presence of Jesus, that's impossible. If, if Jesus Christ is not involved in this process, we will never become fulfilled disciples. And so I want you to notice these four areas in which they greatly manifested the fact that they were unfinished. Uh, they're unfinished in several areas. The first is they're unfinished in faith. Notice what it says, if you can read that far away. This is the New American Standard. The reason I put the text up there is you, we probably have four or five different translations that you have. And so I just want you to see the exact same words in the right translation that I use so you'll see what it says. And this is what it says. On the next day, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion and foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, wait a minute. Do you remember what just happened in this book? Jesus gave his apostles the assignment to go throughout Israel and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he gave them the power to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. And yet they were afraid to cast this demon out of this little boy. And so Jesus, in response to that, answers, you unbelieving and twisted generation, twisted in the sense that they're not seeing things as they really are. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here, he says to the man. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is disciples who were afraid to cast out this demon, even though they had been given the authority of Jesus Christ to do it as his, as his apostles. 
And so Jesus is confronting his apostles. And when you read the commentary, sometimes they're confused. Who is he confronting? Is he confronting everybody around? Is he confronting the man with the boy? No, it's obvious in this context because he's showing us the deficiencies in the lives of the apostles at this time. Even though they've been with Jesus for over a year and a half. And yet they still don't have the kind of faith that they need to have. And this is why they're unfinished in their faith. So Jesus confronts them. Well, what's the big deal? It's a big deal in light of what? Of this. What they have seen Jesus do. They have been with him for over a year. They've seen him do these mighty works of God in people's lives. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. And then what they experienced him do through them when they were on their mission. Look back at Back in, in chapter 9, look back at verses 1 through 6 and listen to what it says. And he called the 12 together and gave them power. This is before. He came, called them there, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. Don't depend on anything else but me. Neither a staff, nor a bag, nor a bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. Don't have two t-shirts. Two undershirts. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go, go out from that city and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they begin going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But now, in face of this situation, They do not have the faith to simply obey Jesus Christ and to trust him to accomplish this purpose. This has been an incredible week for me. Uh, We've had two ladies in our church have heart attacks this week. And uh, one of them was my daughter. And it was a total, total surprise. And I had to tell you how weak I felt. How absolutely helpless to do anything for her. I remember going up to the hospital and sitting by her bed and sitting there talking to her and realizing, I said, all I can do is pray for you. And so I started praying for her. And as I started praying, I just broke down. I, could, I couldn't even finish my prayer. And I thought, I can't even pray. Because it was so overwhelming to think that she had a problem that I couldn't solve. One of the wonderful things when you have children is for a few years, you get to fix everything for them. They actually start looking at you as though you are somebody special who can solve problems. But then as life goes on, you discover that you are totally shipwrecked on God and stranded on omnipotence. If God doesn't work, they're not going to get and experience what they really need to get and experience. We are dependent upon the living God. Well, these men were dependent upon Christ, and yet they failed. So their failure of faith highlights all the more just how immature they were. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is planning on doing. He's going back to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He just told them, and he's told them several times, but they never get it. He's going to be handed over to men. That is, he's going to be taken prisoner he is going to be, he's going to tell them a little more in the future. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be abused and he's going to be crucified and put to death. 
And guess who's going to be left? The apostles. And they've been given this commission, this incredible commission. And Jesus is going to be gone. And so he comforts them in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm not going to leave you without help. I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm going to send a helper that's going to help you. And he's going to empower you. In fact, it's good that I go away, because if I don't go away, then the helper won't come. And the helper, of course, is the Holy Spirit, as he explains. But what he wants them to be is to grow in maturity and become fully discipled so that they know how to follow Christ when he's not physically present. Guess what? Your entire Christian life, you have followed Jesus Christ whom you cannot see. You can't see him. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 to the people scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, these Christians that had scattered because of persecution. And he says, you haven't even seen him. You've never even seen him, even though you're loving him. And you do not see him now, but you're believing in him, believing in a person you've never seen and you don't see now. Well, that's true of all of us. We've never seen him and we're not seeing him now. And yet we're believing on him and we're loving him. And so Peter says, that's why you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the work of the Spirit. Jesus sent the Spirit into the lives of his apostles and into our lives when we came to faith in Christ in order to enable us to be his followers when we can't see him. He is physically absent from us. We can only see him with our spiritual eyes as the Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of who he is. You remember that he had asked his, his apostles in this previous context, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And this is, the parallel of this is found in Matthew 16. You know what? I'm going to have you turn there. Turn back to Matthew 16. I want you to see something. Matthew 16. It begins in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. I just want you to see what happens with Peter, who confesses who Jesus is. So chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, this is a parallel to what we've been seeing in Luke. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say that he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter. Now, this is the man, this is the disciple, this is the apostle who's going to deny him three times. But he's bold in this context. And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. He knew exactly who Jesus was. He was confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, that means stone, rocky, and upon this massive stone, this foundation stone, that is his confession of who Christ is, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, you've got to be impressed with Peter here, don't you? This was the one disciple who said, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's repeated in, our, in the section that we're looking at in Luke. 
But in Matthew, it tells us what happens next. In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, you're going to be exercising authority as my apostle. And it's going to actually take place. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. We've talked about this before. It's not yet time to tell them this. When he's resurrected, they're going to be the eyewitnesses that proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then it says in verse 21, listen to Peter this time. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. That's the gospel. That has to happen in order for the gospel to be fulfilled. Peter took him aside. Peter, this bold apostle, takes Jesus aside. It's kind of like some of us do in prayer. You know, when we're praying, we're telling God what to do instead of asking him. I had a friend who told me that when his wife was, thought she was going to die in the hospital, and they kind of told him there's really no hope, he went into the bathroom and began to pray, but he began to tell God how he couldn't believe he would do this to him. But he said, right in the middle of my anger, my eyes were opened to who God was, and I said, not my will be done, but your will. But here, Peter, listen to what he does. He says, he took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. <laughs> I try, I've tried to think, have I ever rebuked the Lord? Have I ever done that in prayer? I've certainly had people tell me, I cannot believe God would allow this. Well, guess what? He's God and you're not. <laughs> and he knows what he's doing. But Peter says to him, he rebukes him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. You're not going to be crucified. You shall, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he just called him Rocky, and now he calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus had to die in order to give us forgiveness. And to do away with our guilt and our sin. And so here's Peter, the same man here in this, in this group. And in verses 37 through 43, it shows us that they had unfinished faith. Now, they had been developing robust faith. And that's a crucial part of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a crucial part of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is that your faith is formed, your faith is strengthened. You have more confidence in Christ now than you've ever had. That's a part of becoming a disciple. Now, when you first come to faith in Christ, your faith may be very weak. And the first trial that comes along, you think, man, maybe this isn't true. Because if it was true, then there wouldn't be any, I wouldn't be in any trouble. I wouldn't have any trouble in life. <laughs> Would I? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. Trouble is one of the primary tools that God uses in our lives to strengthen our faith. Amen? 
It's true. So one of the things, Jude 3 says that the New Testament is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That tells you something. You want to develop your faith? Read his word. Read this revelation of who Jesus Christ is and talk to one another about it. Praise him together. Pray together. And meet with his saints on a regular basis. And then don't mitigate the difficulties in your disciples' life. God puts you in somebody's life and you're functioning as a disciple maker in their life. Don't try to mitigate all their difficulties. God uses difficulties to teach us how to trust him. We're told that over and over again. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to me in Asia Minor. I was tested beyond my ability to bear. I despaired of life. Why, Paul? Why would God allow this happen to you? So that I would no longer trust in myself, but him who raises the dead. God wants you to trust him, not your wisdom, not your abilities. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is trustworthy. You can trust him, and he wants you to teach him. He wants to teach you to trust him. The second thing is, I think I'm on the right page here, is unfinished in understanding. Listen to verses 44 and 45. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, they're marveling at what Jesus did. He said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Okay, this is a high point. Jesus is the most popular man in the group. Everybody is so impressed with him. And then Jesus, not acting like a good leader in a in a uh, organization today, doesn't take advantage of this to promote himself. He says, rather... Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're cheering me now, but they're going to be saying what? When he's, hang, when, when he's before Pilate, what are they going to be saying? Crucify him. His popularity is going to go away. But it says, but they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about the statement. You know, in order to, to have understanding, we're told in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1 that Paul prayed for the Colossians. He says, I, ever since I heard about your conversion, I continue to pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I pray that you would grow in understanding, spiritual understanding, that you would begin to look through the lens of the cross at everything in life, That's what needs to happen in our lives. And they did not experience that. And what he's telling them is popularity isn't the goal of his ministry. They needed to know that very truth. You know, sometimes it really does happen, especially in the American church, that we think popularity is the most important thing. If we could just become a very popular people, if we could become popular to the world, we have succeeded. Well, it didn't, it wasn't what Jesus was looking for. He was looking for faith. We understand that the cross was a scandalous, offensive thing, and that's why they rebelled against it. But it was also because they refused to understand what they needed to understand because they didn't want it to be true. They wanted Jesus to be enthroned right before their eyes by all of Israel. And that's not what happened. Why? 
so he could save you. The reason that Israel rejected him and had the Romans crucify him was this in God's plan. God's purpose was so that the gospel could come to you. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he was rejected and hated and arrested and condemned and hung on a cross. He took the punishment that was due me. Judy found um, a copy of uh, The Passion of Christ and some of our DVDs, so we put it on and started watching it. And uh, I shouldn't have done that because it's, it's overwhelming for a believer to watch that and to know that this is just a depiction of what happened. It's, it's portrayed in such a realistic way, and we realize this is what Jesus went through for me. This is what he went through for me. Yes. Yes. He was not only arrested, he was condemned, and he was beaten. But that's not, the, that's not really the big part of this. While he hung on the cross, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he had become sin for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, who knew no, he made him, God the Father made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why. So that he could save us. This is the second time that Jesus had told them about it, that he was going to be arrested and so forth. And it's not the last time he's going to tell them again and again. But they continue to not understand it. What you heard read this morning on the, of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus walking seven miles, that's, uh, you know, the word for, pedag- the word pedagogy means is uh, the study of teaching. And pedagogy, it has to do with walking, as uh, teachers often walked and talked to their students. That's how they learned. And so Jesus is walking seven miles with these two disciples who are totally disillusioned. They think it's over. We thought he was going to be the Messiah, but he was crucified. They condemned him and crucified him. And they're walking with the resurrected Jesus, and they don't know it. <laughs> and suddenly, when he does, their eyes aren't even open until they get to their home, and he's, he's reclining at meal with them, and when he, picks, when he breaks the bread, their eyes are open, and they see that this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. They didn't understand. Of course, it hadn't happened yet. But what about you? Have you taken the time? You know, the only way to build your, your understanding is to expose yourself to the truth. That's the only way. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to be filled with the knowledge of His will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You have to come to the, the, the Bible that He's given you, which unveils to you God's heart and God's plan and God's purpose and God's Son. And then we'll gain wisdom. It's a part of the process of the Word of God taking root in your heart. Now, these men had an excuse. This hadn't happened yet. They had better plans than this. You know, Peter had a better plan than Jesus being arrested and beaten and crucified. His plan was that Jesus wouldn't suffer any resistance whatsoever. The whole nation would bow down to him, and he would become the king of Israel. But God said, it's too small a thing 
for you to save one nation. I'm going to use you to save people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's going to become the savior of the world. And so Jesus didn't follow Peter's plan. Has that ever happened to you? Has God not followed your plan ever? You know that plan that you have that sometimes you tell him about? Has he ever done that? Oh, aren't you grateful? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that, that Jesus didn't follow Peter's plan and he's not followed your plan? But he's followed his plan and his plan is so much better than your plan. Now, the, the third thing is they were unfinished in humility. I hate this one. Listen to this. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child, the most humble person in their midst, a little child who had no rights to even speak among these adults. He took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this is the one that is great. I hope you get this. Jesus was saying, if you receive the one that the greater sent, even though he's the lowliest, you've received God. Now, what they want to know is which one of them was the greatest. I heard uh, Paul Washer, a young prophet. (laughs) He talks like a prophet. He's a go-getter. And he was talking to a bunch of young preachers, guys who just graduated from seminary. And he said, uh, your problem is not that you don't preach well enough or that you don't have the ability to do all these things you're supposed to do, that you're getting this line of ministry you're getting into. Let me tell you what your problem is. You're too strong. You're not weak enough. Why is that true? It's true because it is not until we come to the realization that we are in desperate need of God that he can ever use us. As Vance Abner put it, when we finally become shipwrecked on God and stranded on omnipotence, when we are totally, completely dependent upon God to work, that's when we can pray. That's when we can walk in obedience to him. When I was praying for my daughter, I realized I'm supposed to know how to pray. But all I could do is blubber. You know, all I could do is just beg God, please have mercy on her. Father, I know you're the only one who can keep her safe. I can't keep her safe. It reminded me what I had, the flashback was when she was two years old. She got pneumonia, and she was in a hospital, Richmond Hospital, and they wouldn't let us stay with her. We could come in and see her for just a few minutes, and we had to leave. And I still remember what it was like to leave her under that oxygen tent and wondering if she was going to survive. I was overwhelmed by it. I can remember it hurt like crazy that I couldn't do anything for her. 
Well, guess what? We serve a God who is able and we are not. And so that means we have to trust him. It's why we pray. You know, Peter said, we're living in the last days, and therefore, we ought to stay sober and alert for the purpose of prayers. We ought to be praying together because there are needs in the world that only God can meet. There are needs in our lives that only God can meet. And so we should be praying together because he's the only one we can come to that can meet the need, accomplish what's really needed. And so he's wanting to teach these disciples what they don't know yet. And so this whole thing of humility, this is stunning. This is such childishness, isn't it? Isn't it childish for these men, these grown men, apostles of Jesus Christ, arguing about who's the greatest among them? Is that stupid or what? It's ridiculous, isn't it? And what's so horrible is it convicts me. It convicts me. What a stupid thing to do is to care who's the greatest among us. What really matters is God is the only one who is able. And this is seen for what it is when Jesus takes this actual child and places him right before them. This is a child who would have no status at all in that culture. And he says, here's greatness if I send him. If he's representing me, he's great. If you're representing me, you're great. They've scarcely begun to learn what it means to follow either the servant on the path, which is Jesus, or this, uh, of, he's on the path of self-denial, or the king in his concern for the welfare of others. And so this is, this is just amazing. It's... Uh, it's a blight on the church of Jesus Christ. It's horrible when we give in to that temptation. We're actually told this is, this, is actually a, uh, this is actually a method of Satan to fill us with pride. Listen to this. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 6. When you put somebody in the place of leadership, don't put a, a new convert so that he will not become conceited, puffed up, full of wind, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Satan wants to fill us with pride instead of humility. But we serve a humble servant. And when we become like Jesus, we begin to have a quality called humility. I read an article this past month that kind of stunned me. It, was, it really convicted me personally because it was about a funny form of pride that looks like humility, but it's really pride. It's when that you always defer to others because you don't want to look awkward. You don't want to be uncomfortable. You don't want to, be, you don't want to carry out what God's called you to do because you don't want to flop and fail. And so you gladly give, defer to someone else to do it instead of trusting God simply to do what he's called you to do. I know as parents... It's so tempting, so tempting. I I used to do this all the time. It's so tempting to find somebody who could talk to one of your children that might have some influence because you don't want to talk to them. You know they're going to ignore you and reject what you say. And so you're trying to find somebody who's dumb enough and bold enough to talk to them about Christ. 
But actually, that's, that's not humility, that's pride. It's pride. There's really nothing wrong with looking foolish in the eyes of people if you're doing the will of God. Right? If you're doing the will of God, there are going to be times when people think you look really foolish. But what's important is, are you doing the will of God? Well, the last thing, in verses 49 and 50, oops, where'd I go? There it is. Unfinished, their unfinished intolerance. Ah, this hits too close to home too. Listen to this. Jesus answered and said, I mean, John answered and said, now this is John who write, wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. He is the apostle of love and concern and compassion. And yet listen to what he says. John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. He's not part of our, our group. But Jesus said to them, do not hinder him for he is not against you, he's for you. Now this is John the Apostle speaking. He had a zeal for truth here, but he had not yet developed what he developed later before he wrote his books. And that was his insight and love, which are revealed in his letters. The zealous among God's people are concerned for the purity of the church, and so they're always wanting to label people. I took a class in the first seminary I went to San Francisco Baptist, uh, San Francisco Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. They were militant fundamentalists. And the final on a uh, class I took, the final exam on a class I took was they gave us a whole list of names, Christian leaders. And we were supposed to categorize them as fundamentalist, evangelical, neo-evangelical, or liberal. That was the final test, that we could brand somebody by something. Because, you see, when you brand somebody like that, you basically eliminate them having any influence in your life. What we, talking about, what we have been talking about on Sunday night is the one body, that the church is one body. That all true believers are in the body of Christ. Now, they meet in places all over the world. They meet in groups like this. And they come together and they worship and they praise God and they listen to his word. But we're one body. And so just because somebody's wrong about something doesn't mean they're not a child of God. If that were true, we'd all be in trouble. Have you changed your mind about anything in, in doctrine, in theology? Of course, if you've been paying any attention, you have. But here John, he wants to, he wants to stop this guy. And this is what the zealous among us tend to do. We're so concerned for the purity of the church that we don't have any breadth of sympathy and depth of vision. I got a letter this week from a guy that I know real well. He's a missionary. And he has a part of his theology is wrong. And it's significant. And I've talked to him about it. And I told him we could not support you because of this theological issue. And I think I'm right in, we're right in doing that. But he wrote me this email, and he told me he was in great need. Uh, he's, been, he's got some real in massive uh, health problems, and he's got to get treatment. But he can't, the government's supposed to pay for this, but they won't pay for it yet. And if he doesn't get the treatment soon, he's going to be in great danger. 
And so he was asking for people if they could send him money. And so I sat there and thought about that. Wait a minute, this guy doesn't agree with us on a key area of doctrine. Would it be right for me to send him money? Would it be right, not the church's money, but my money, would it be right for me to send him money to help him out? To help a guy who is messed up in his theology? Well, John at this moment would say no, but Jesus rebukes him. Don't hinder him. This guy that I'm talking about preaches the gospel in dangerous places. A wiser response for John would have been what we find in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel, who was not a Christian, he was a Jewish teacher, and the leaders of Israel were talking to him about what they ought to do about Jesus and about his, this movement that was going on. And this is what Gamaliel said. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. God is, is amazing, isn't he? Isn't it something that he loves you when you believe things that you now know are not true? Isn't that something? He didn't wait until you had a perfect understanding of doctrine before he loved you. In fact, what the Bible says is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can love people. Some of our people are serving in a, in a food pantry here in town, and they were, they were operating out of this, I don't know what that is, a sewing center or something, and somebody didn't like the fact that all these people, these needy people were coming through town and coming to get food, and so they got pushed out of that, and they're meeting over in an open car lot, I mean an open lot next to the, the railroad thing, out there in the elements. And it's easy to be like that as Christians, isn't it? You know, the problem is if you help these homeless people, they're going to overrun you. I have a friend, or I had a friend, he's in heaven now, but he pastored a church over in Fairfield, and they would actually let the rescue mission bring people into their church building, into their church building, and spend the night and feed them and preach the gospel to them once every week. So it'd be like a Wednesday night, Thursday morning. And they, they caused them a lot of trouble because they got the church building dirty. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't make it smell better, but worse. I mean, after all, are we supposed to be tolerant of people that make us uncomfortable? Are we supposed to love people who aren't like us and don't have our level of, you know, our level of how you should live. Now, Paul tells us in the church, if you have people who refuse to work and they just mooch off of other Christians, if they won't work, then don't let them eat. He was quite straightforward, but he wasn't saying that because, he says, because he's saying, hey, these poor people are poor because of their own problems. No, he was saying, if you have somebody who refuses to work, they're too good to work, why should they work since we all have a lot of resources we could give to them? And so he wants to confront them, to teach them they need to work with their own hands, 
God will provide for them and they'll have enough to help others. That was for their benefit. Not because he wanted them to distance themselves from these kind of people. God has called us to love the world in a way that won't violate the commandment that we should not love the world or the things in the world. We should love people. We should care about people because Jesus Christ came into the world for those kind of people. So what can Jesus do with a group of people like this? Still an unbelieving, slow-witted, swollen-headed, narrow-minded. What can we do with him? What can he do with him? Except take them with him for another year's course of teaching. And that's what he does. That's what we're going to see in the next 10 chapters. He takes these apostles with him. They're with him every day. And they see what true righteousness is in the life of Jesus Christ. And what true love is what the gospel really is. So if we have these kinds of problems, if we're unfinished in faith, unfinished in understanding, unfinished in humility, and unfinished in tolerance, we need to spend some time with Jesus. And even if those aren't shortcomings, we need to spend time with Jesus, don't we? So let me pray for that we will do that. And I've, let's, let me pray. Our Father, We want to be people that are being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ every day. We want to be people who who can show by our very lives, demonstrate by the way we live and the way we relate to Jesus Christ, that we truly are disciples of Jesus Christ. Not perfect, but growing. So I ask you that you would cause these truths to sink deep in our hearts. I pray that we would seek you with all of our heart. When Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's a wonderful promise. And I pray that we would be a people that seek the kingdom of God above all other things. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come in power in our hearts right now and open our eyes to the glory of Christ and for his great power. That we could see the power that he has to work in our lives, even in our difficult circumstances. We pray for this. I do pray for Linda Quillacy, Father, you'd continue to bring complete healing and restoration to her. I do pray for for Pam Lawser, who's in the hospital right now. I just pray that you would keep your hand upon her, raise her up, give her strength, make her well. Father, thank you for this family that's been so loving and caring for so many people. And we pray that you would make them whole. You're the great healer, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would heal and make whole for your glory. Thank you so much for this time we've had together as your people, that we get to come together freely in a public building and praise your name. We can have your praise on our lips. We can sing praises to you openly and publicly and as loud as we want. Thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to take that great privilege seriously. So bless us and use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.